Hi, I'm Sylvain Berthelot and you're listening to On One Condition, a podcast to raise awareness about health conditions by listening to people who live them every day. Today, my guest is Ella Balassa, and we're going to talk about cystic fibrosis. Hi, Ella. Thank you for joining. How are you today? Great. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you uh, on, on the podcast. Um, as you uh, know, I like starting with a song. Uh, so would you like to tell us which song you chose and why? Well, I had to think about this for a couple of days, and although I listened to a lot of music, I had a hard time figuring out what this song was, but it's a song that I uh, listened to growing up uh, in my you know, younger teenage years, and it's just fun and upbeat, and although I think at this point some people might have differing opinions about the artist, but it is uh, Forever by Chris Brown, um, Forever on the Dance Floor. <laughs> Nice. And I know it's a hard question. I would myself have trouble to actually <laughs> answer it, uh, but I really like to uh, learn about people's songs. And uh, yeah. Um, so today we're talking about cystic fibrosis. Uh, you, you talk quite a lot about it. Uh, you're a patient advocate. Um, when you talk about cystic fibrosis and your experience with it, what do you like starting with? When I tell people who are unfamiliar with cystic fibrosis, who have not really heard of the disease, maybe they've heard of it, heard of it in passing, but don't really know anything about it, um, I typically explain that it, for like a normal person, it's it's sort of like if you were breathing through a straw. Um, it's very you know constricted breathing. Um, you know, have a hard time with gaining a full breath of air in. Um, and then I can, you know, sometimes I go in further to explain more of the symptoms. It's, you know, frequent. It's almost like having a constant con constant lung congestion. Whereas if you're always sick with a respiratory cold in your chest, it's like that all the time. So it causes buildup of thick mucus in the lungs. Um, due to a defect in some of the protein channels within the cells of the lungs. And this leads to um, chronic lung infections, which really are only treated with uh, the use of antibiotics. So throughout my life, I've had um, numerous hospitalizations ever since I was very young, uh, having to be hospitalized to get intravenous antibiotics, um, for numerous weeks at a time to treat these lung infections. So you're, you're not constantly under treatment of antibiotics, but you, you need it from time to time, is that right? That's right. So it's intermittent. It's when the infections kind of flare up and cause um, more difficulty in breathing and there's more of the mucus uh, in the lungs, it's harder to breathe. So that's when I do use courses of antibiotics. On the daily basis, though, I do have to do airway clearance using um, nebulizer treatments, aerosols, to open the airways. Um, and daily, I have to um, you know, clear the lungs of this mucus. So that's done by 
coughing it out <laughs> pretty much um, as unpleasant as that is. Um, it's, it's done. I do these treatments three to four times a day and requires just sitting down and doing these breathing inhalations and then um, a sequence of various breathing exercises, um, breathing at different lung volumes to move the secretions out of the lungs. Um, and also exercises just as important for somebody with CF as anybody else. So um, I try to, you know, I've had I ebb and flow in my consistency with working out, but it's very important to, you know, keep the lungs strong and healthy overall. And so um, it's another form of airway clearance, really. That's interesting. You just mentioned like exercises to to keep the lungs strong. Um, I do exercise, but I've never thought of it as um, keep, like helping my lungs getting strong. For me, it's more that lungs are, are a tool that help me do exercise. But for you, it seems like it's it works the opposite way. Well, if you think about it, you know, if you if you've gone periods of time where you haven't been as active, and then let's say you're gonna try to go on a you know a long run or something, you're gonna have a much harder time. And that's because of the, well, you know, the cardiopulmonary uh, functions aren't as good because they they do atrophy and deteriorate when you don't use something as much. So um, sort of the same with with the lungs too, and um, it's really just that movement of air to keep to keep the airways clear. Mm -hmm. So the first thing you said to describe. Uh, cystic fibrosis is like breathing through a straw, mm -hmm. which sounds exhausting. Ju just thinking about it, is it that exhausting? It is. Um, it, it certainly is. And you know, cystic fibrosis is a progressive disease. So over time, the <clears throat> excuse me, the infections in the lungs deteriorate the lung tissue because of the cycle of the inflammation from the body trying to fight these infections causes scar tissue. And so, you know, as years go on, I, I have less and less of my lung capacity to, you know, breathe in and exchange, uh, you know, the air and the oxygen from the air into carbon dioxide and expel it. So I have less of the capacity of my lung to do that. So I have to take more even more frequent breaths like my my breath frequency is much quicker than a normal person's because less of the air that's going in is actually being utilized and able to be used by the lung and so at this point I do have to use supplemental oxygen so through a nasal cannula um, to get extra oxygen into my lungs when I am exercising um, just when I'm exerting more effort and energy, um, when I'm sleeping as well, um, because in our in our sleep we breathe much more shallow, less air goes into our bodies. Um, so I, I over the past couple of years now I have been using oxygen like this intermittently in my life, and um, it's something that's difficult and it's difficult to get adjusted to. Um, but to go back briefly to you know, the, the breathing through the straw, 
another, although cystic fibrosis is a relatively invisible disease, mm-hmm. um, some of the outward signs when somebody has more declined respiratory function is the, you know, the, the clavicle of the chest that so you can see it rising when the person's trying to just take in a deep breath as if they were out of breath, even just being still. And then with having to use so much of the chest muscles to try to get that air into the lungs with the resistance that, you know, kind of like breathing through a straw, there's some of that resistance. Um, it causes the kind of the chest to cave, kind of cave forward and a little bit of more of like a hunched back in, in a way a little bit because of those muscles having to work so hard to, to get the air into the lungs. Okay. And so you, you described the way like the, the disease progresses. So you, have you noticed the progression then? I have, yes. Um, at this point, I have um, about less than 30% uh, lung function remaining. So, um, you know, obviously 100 is measured, the you know, the average measure for, for a person. And... Um, so having 30%, you can imagine I'm quite limited in what I can do f- as far as my physical activity level. Um, you know, I can no longer go on a run or do um, a lot of like physically strenuous, like even walking up a hill, you know, hiking is very difficult. Um, any sort like skiing, any sort of really intense sports activities I cannot do. Um, and even, you know, I do, like I said, I do exercise. I try to do lift, lift some like lighter weights and, um, you know, walk as well. But even with, with that type of exercise, I do have to use the oxygen to, to help my body, you know, have, have enough oxygen to be able to fuel the muscles. Yeah. Um, so going back to um, your childhood, is how did you realize? Is that something that was easy to diagnose, and how did it affect you as a child? So I was diagnosed at eighteen months old. So I don't remember my diagnosis journey, uh, but my mom, my parents um, had have told me that I was very sickly as a child, just always always have the respiratory upper and lower respiratory infections. I always okay. had a cough, um, always was very underweight, had a hard time keeping weight on. Uh, and that's because cystic fibrosis also affects the pancreas. Um, so it's a, it's a multi-organ affected disease. Um, and within the pancreas, it doesn't allow for the digestive enzymes that the pancreas produces to digest our food when we eat. So this these digestive enzymes don't go into my stomach to digest food. So I have to take them artificially and oh, okay. anything, you know, artificially isn't quite as quite the same as what our own body can produce. And so I've always been very underweight um, until, until more recently. But um, so growing up, you know, I had a relatively normal childhood Um other than the fact that I, as I said, you know, at the beginning, I do, I did have to be hospitalized a lot. Um, I, you know, some, some years it was four or five times a year, 
um, for two for two or three weeks at a time. Some some years it wasn't at all. I didn't have to, so it depended. But besides that, I you know I think my parents raised me to be you know a normal kid, be like everybody else, and and allow, and allowed me to not 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 sheltered me too much to live in a bubble, which I think is really important for you know people living with chronic chronic conditions to have that normalcy as well. Yes, and that's a discussion we've had a lot on the podcast uh, with various guests. And as a child, there's this focus on on being the same as everyone else, being able to do the same as everyone else. So that's very important. Uh, so it's good that you you manage to have that still, despite the, the disease. Um, and so, like growing up now, are the infections less? Because like you tend to to catch more bugs when you're young. Um, so do you have less troubles with that now? Well, um, as of very recent, and I'll get to that in a minute, but I start, there was a new medication that was approved in 2019 that treats the underlying cause of cystic fibrosis. And okay. it doesn't, it um, doesn't allow for that mucus to accumulate quite as much in the lungs mm -hmm. um, because um, the epithelial cells in the lungs are, are norm more normally functioning. And so that, that mucus doesn't build up in the lungs. And so that has reduced the Uh, the severity of the, of the infections that I've dealt with in these last few years. Um, I still do use antibiotics, but I haven't had to use any intravenous antibiotics uh, since I started that medication. So that's been a tremendous difference for me because prior to that, um, prior to that, I had been increasingly having more and more infections Because, um, you know, in young, in childhood, that's when these, we do get a lot of bugs. That's when we, you know, when, when the lungs are first colonized with these bacteria. So over time, you know, over many years, these colonies just, you know, really embed themselves into the lung and they're nearly impossible. In cystic fibrosis, they're nearly impossible to eradicate once you have them. So over, over time, as the lung deteriorates, you know, with, with this infection cycle, the harder and harder it is to treat the infections themselves. So up to, you know, really within in like 2017, 2018, right before I got this medication, started this medication, I was having infections where I was using intravenous antibiotics, you know, again, like four or five times every year. And my lung function at that point had dropped closer to like 20%. And so I was, um, I was actually referred to get a lung transplant. So when I started this medication called Trikafta in 2019, I was already in the process of um, going through that getting in the process of being listed for a lung transplant. Okay. Uh, but now your lung capacity has increased. So do you expect to carry on increasing with the treatment? 
It has increased, um, as I said, a, a little bit, yes. And I will definitely continue on this treatment. It has helped to stabilize my lungs um, quite a bit. Yeah. However, um, it, you know, it's not a it's not a cure, and there is still it doesn't prevent progression of the disease completely. So I will, um, I will still need at some point in the future and realistically, maybe in the next, um, you know, four to five years, I think I would have to go down the road of getting a lung transplant as well, because it, you know, the lungs will still be deteriorating. And because I only have, you know, that 30% lung capacity, it's still very low and I'm still operating, um, day to day. It's sort of like, walking this tightrope where, you know, you're, I'm healthy as long as I'm on this track, but so quickly and so easily can I fall off. Um, and that's, you know, with any, with a really bad infection, you know, if I get some sort of, you know, respiratory, you know, virus or lung infection, and then compounded with the bacteria that's already in my lungs, things can go south very quickly. Um, I also had in the last couple of years, um, I've had a number of lung collapses. So these have required um, lung surgeries to essentially glue the lung back. And so because when the lung collapses, it just, um, there's like an air pocket where the lung is supposed to be. And so they have to glue it to keep it upright. And so I've had this procedure done um, four times in total um, on both sides of the lungs. And, um, I never know when that might happen again. And if that were to happen again, I think very, in a very serious degree, I'm not sure that they would do another surgery, you know, to kind of try to preserve the lung, but rather, you know, at that point I may have to go through with transplant. So that's very, so when I say I talk, I walk this like tightrope, it's, it's, my health is still, despite my the stability that I have gained, it, it definitely is still very precarious and unknown. Yeah, it's incredible because watching you, you like there's nothing <laughs> to to show that you 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 have this struggle and and yeah, it, it's a reminder that uh, even. If something's not visible, it doesn't mean that there is nothing. Um, right. So talking about lung transplant, how, how do you feel about, about it? And like, is there anything you think of before you go into like applying for a lung transplant? So I have been referred for lung transplant twice in my life. The first time was when I was 20 years old. And um, that's when my lung function dipped pretty quickly. I had some serious infections. And um, I went to the transplant center and did a lot of the testing that's required for getting the lung transplant. And then they determined at that time that I was still relatively healthy, like too healthy for this window that they like, that the patients, um, they, they call it like a window of health where, you know, a patient is sick enough that they, they, they need a transplant, but not too sick 
where they would not be able to survive one. So I was, I was deemed too healthy. And, you know, after that went back to my normal life. And then in, again, in 2000, early 2019, before I started this medication, I again was very, very sick. Uh, My lung function was 18% and my doctors decided that it was time again for me to pursue the transplant. And, you know, the second time around, it wasn't as unfamiliar to me because I had already kind of gone through that the first time and knew what kind of testing to expect, um, knew a lot about what, you know, living with a lung transplant is like afterward. Um, in the in, in the last couple of years, I made a number of friends actually that have cystic fibrosis who have had transplants. And so I've learned a lot from them and see, you know, what their life looks like now. And seeing that really has given me a lot of hope. Um, I, I, I think I, I understand that there is definitely, you know, getting a lung transplant is, is like trading one disease for another. You trade cystic fibrosis because the lungs of the person that, you know, has deceased and they give, give you the lungs, those person's lungs do not have cystic fibrosis. So you, the, the same symptoms will not be occurring with the, the mucus and the infection and all of that. However, a person has to be immune suppressed artificially yeah. to, yeah. So, that, so that the body doesn't reject the organ. And so this is lifelong. So once you get the lung transplant, lifelong, you have to be immune suppressed. And so this comes, this brings, you know, a host of other complications because, um, first of all, the rate of, um, you know, you can get infections in other parts of the body because your immune system can't fight off the infections. The rate of cancer also increases too, because um, our immune system actually catches a lot of cancers, cancer cells very early on. Mm-hmm. So okay. that doesn't occur either. But anyway, it's to, to tell you a little bit more about my, my feelings about it. I feel hopeful, you know, about it whenever that Whenever that happens and whenever it needs to happen, I, I know that I've, you know, lived my life as fully as I can and aim to live it as fully as I can. And I'm hopeful that a transplant would prolong and extend the time that I would be able to continue, um, you know, having, having a fulfilled life and doing the things that maybe now I can't as being more physically active, you know, and, and doing a lot of these more like, uh, intense sports. And that's something like, I'm a very, I'm a pretty adventurous person. And I like to, I like to push my limits a little bit, but you know, realistically, I cannot do a lot of those things now. So I'm hopeful to have that again in my life and to do those things. Um, but I understand too, very well, the, as I've just described, you know, the, the difficulty that it will be as well in my future. Yes. And, uh, and I guess you've, you also need to be worse before you can get better through the lung transplant, which I imagine is not something you're necessarily looking forward to. You're exactly right. It's, it's that, that's really what I'm not looking forward to is that period of time that I want my brain and my, you know, my body wants to do so much, but physically my lungs will and do now already, but will even more limit me so much 
to the point where, you know, the, the quality of my life will be significantly diminished. Yeah. Well, um, so thank you for, for sharing so much. It's, it's incredibly interesting, but also like it, it paints a, I think a realistic picture of uh, cystic fibrosis. So thank you. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to switch subjects slightly uh, because I know that your, well, th like maybe because of your condition, I don't know, you can explain, but you're into patient advocacy, uh, but also patient engagement in your work. So would you like to share more about this, how you got to this? Absolutely. So obviously having a lot of healthcare experiences, hospitalizations throughout my life, I've learned to self-advocate and, you know, I, I know so much about my own care that I have made a lot of the decisions for my care along the way. You know, I tell my doctors when I need, think I need antibiotics, when I need to be hospitalized. And in the last few times, the last few times that it's happened, I also know when I have a lung collapse, I can feel it. And I, and I go to my, I go to the hospital because I know what's going on. Um, and so, you know, having that good doctor to patient relationship that I've developed and having the knowledge of my own care, I realize how necessary and valuable that is for other patients as well when they're navigating their healthcare. And so that's kind of one thing that's been my passion and my motivator is serving as somewhat of a, a patient voice in for other people living with diseases to encourage them to have more involvement and understanding of their care and trying to learn more about research that's upcoming or, you know, clinical trial opportunities that are out there to just be better informed to then hopefully be able to make the best choices for their care as possible. And I mean, I have, you know, some, some experiences of getting like an experimental treatment that I really advocated for getting for myself so some of those um, experiences, um, which I shared more publicly, um, I had a number of articles published um, in like the Huff, HuffPost, um, Stat News, a couple of other, um, you know, journal and, and um, news kind of sources talking about my patient health experiences. Because I wanted to share, I want to share more publicly about this and kind of serve as this voice. So Along those lines, and that has been over the past couple of years that I've done this, um, I also have a degree in biology. So I worked for a couple of years in a microbiology lab. So we were looking at bacteria that are present in the environment. And interestingly enough, the same ones that are often found in the lungs of people with CF. And we're looking at their antibiotic resistance profiles. So it's just interesting how, you know, this is research that I was doing in the lab unrelated to health, really looking at it in antibiotics in the environment and how much overlap there was with my own care and my own health and, you know, dealing with these infections in my own life. Yeah. And so I started uh, initially volunteering with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. So I was on a number of research patient, research committees sharing the patient perspective on um, how 
uh, like what areas of need there are for research to focus on, um, how um, protocol, like clinical trial protocols can be made more easier for people to participate in. Um, I was also creating um, patient facing materials and like simplifying research concepts for for patients to understand. Um, and so I was a lot of that was on a volunteer basis, but that allowed me to have this sort of professional uh, perspective, I guess, professional, like a pa- professional patient in a way where I was communicating with researchers, with physicians, with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation staff, you know, but I was really, I, I felt like I was in the same, you know, in the same room, in the same sphere, but I was bringing this patient voice. And so that's really what started um, a lot of the patient engagement work and that I do now. Um, it was really finding and it was a, a progression over time. The more experiences that I had, you know, the more I felt comfortable in leveraging my voice and, and reaching out to organizations. Um, and, you know, then sitting now, I sit on a number of uh, patient advisory boards with numerous companies um, and do some independent consulting as well. Just bringing that, you know, helping them under helping them first improve relationships with patients providing valuable information for patients that they can understand and obtain information about their care and their health effectively. Um, And then also, you know, just, uh, and then also improving the the clinical trial process as well uh, for patients, because that's, you know, that's how we're getting new innovation and, you know, new treatments. And so getting participation in trials is very important for, for, you know, expediting research. So those are the different areas in which I've now worked um, in this patient engagement capacity where I'm consulting with companies. But it, it has taken, you know, as I said, it started just from my own experiences and being confident in relaying my, um, you know, my own healthcare to my doctors and, and then more broadly to the research community. Um, and then now, you know, working with, with companies directly. So it's been um, looking back, you know, I I do see how far I've come with it, and I am certainly really proud of it. But also at the same time, it's just you know it's been very much fueled by my passion. So you don't really I don't see it as work, you know. I mean, obviously it is, but it is something I love doing and really provides a lot of that. As I said, a lot of that fulfillment for my life. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I completely understand why. <laughs> uh, but it was also interesting to hear you that to hear you say that you, you've worked on like writing documents for patients because patient engagement can be very theoretical in a way or high level, but actually like it, it's those um, points that like touch points with patients that are very important so right that 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 must be really good to be able to put it in real practice uh and so that what people see is actually what you produce i think that's i i definitely agree with you on that it's you know a lot of it can patient engagement can be very abstract and kind of like the you know the um the 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 structure like you know the, the process like how are we going to set up how are we going to have better engagement with patients but I really do enjoy actually 
doing doing the work of you know creating these materials or, or guiding the the strategy for you know how how it can be really done, not just not just talking about it in a in a conference you know abstractly, which I do attend a lot of conferences and I speak on a number of panels, but I much enjoy you know actually communicating with patients, other patients directly. Um, sometimes I, I lead a number of like patient organizations, patient focus groups, things like that. Um, and then, yeah, providing these like resources and support because, you know, I think so significantly there's a lot of lacking support and resources available to patients um, in navigating their healthcare, whether that's in, you know, learning how to communicate with their doctors, whether that's obtaining resources about insurance, you know, and, and options for that, or, you know, whether that's just even understanding their own disease. So that's, um, you know, all of this is, it's a very overarchingly, you know, the improving the healthcare system really by enabling and empowering patients. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's so many, there are so many people who are willing to take care in clinical trials who really want to help others by doing so. So removing the administrative hurdles and making it easier to get into a trial can only help everyone. Um, Absolutely. Well, that's that's a very amazing um, work you're doing. Um, And I'm sure there's a, a lot of people who are thankful for what you're doing. Um, and so where would you like to take this? Like, do you have a, an ideal of what would you would like patient engagement to, to look like? Yeah, I, I certainly get, get asked this sometimes. I'd say the ideal is, um, well, patient engagement as a whole, and the ideal of what I like with that to look like is that patients are true partners in, you know, the development of, of new research and of healthcare as a whole. So that means that the patient is, you know, sitting at the table with, you know, the, the sponsors and the companies that are developing really from early, from the inception of, you know, research idea and like from getting a molecule and really, you know, just really early stages before a protocol is developed, you know, really gaining, getting that, those patients involved in those conversations, being a part of it, not just having patients be this add on and, you know, oh, okay, well, we, we've done all of this, you know, we've developed a protocol. We, we have, we just need patients to now be, you know, we need to just get them in the trials and then, okay, how are we going to reach out to them? No, have, you know, have those perspectives early on where, they already, it can be embedded in the community. You know, it can very easily, you can very easily be obtaining the patients for getting involvement in the trials because there's already a network established. You know, there's already, you know, having also having patients involved early with, and here in the United States with, you know, the FDA approved, uh, FDA process too. Mm-hmm. You know, having those conversations because the development of a lot of these like clinical trial endpoints and, you know, patient reported outcomes you know, all of those are kind of set either by what has already been done with, with other trials or with, uh, in other diseases, or, you know, they're not really necessarily optimized t- 
to get the best information from patients or to obtain the best like metrics to understand how a certain medication might improve a disease. You know, like in cystic, for example, in cystic fibrosis, there is a, a clinical endpoint in, uh, an ex- sorry, of FEV1, which is the measure of lung function improvement. Um, but the, there's a very commonly used exclusion criteria that anybody with less than 40% lung function is excluded from all new drug trials in cystic fibrosis. And as we've talked about in you know the last 30 minutes here is that uh, I have had lower than, you know, 30, around 30% lung function, certainly lower than 40% for the last more than more than 10 years of my life. So I have not been able to participate in any trials simply for that fact. And I think it's just an arbitrary value that is not necessarily indicative of a person's overall health. You know, I, I have had many ups and downs in my health, but relatively speaking, have lived a quality life, been able to function quite well in my life, despite having that lower lung function. And, you know, the idea is, okay, well, people that have less than 40% are just very sick, unstable, you know, their data may not be as as valuable, or, you know, we might have some issues with, you know, potentially losing them in a trial. Um, And so that's the idea behind it, but it hasn't been really, there hasn't been any patient input and, and involvement in how can, you know, helping to determine, okay, what other, can we use other endpoints, first of all, as primary endpoints, other than the measure of lung function, FEV1, and can we be more inclusive uh, of, of including a broader population within a study? Because, you know, that population that's less than 40%, now there's no data, there is not no, no data on how they might respond to a certain drug. And, and with, you know, the advent of you know, a lot of gene therapy upcoming that's going to be, you know, great for, for, for cystic fibrosis and a lot of other, you know, gene, gene genetic and, and rare diseases. Um, you know, it's important to have an understanding of how a medication, a treatment will affect the entirety of the population of any, of any condition. And so, you know, having patients involved in that development and really co-creating and understanding how, you know, bringing together the, the sponsors in developing, you know, a more, collab, more um, better trials, basically, more expansive trials, and also conversations with the FDA too, because they're used to, you know, getting this, the data from certain endpoints that they're used to, and that's that. And that, it takes a lot of change, you know, and slow change. And um, so anyway, I've gone on quite a bit of a team, <laughs> but... Um, you know, I would love to see patient engagement bring patients early in that in the conversations, in the process, in the development. That's my ideal of what you know what patient engagement is. Um, and you know, I I do see some progression. Obviously, like over just these last few years, I've had so many of these opportunities to lend my patient voice that I think were unheard of. You know, ten even ten years ago. So it's been great. Um, and I'm, I'm just very hopeful for seeing even more. Uh, I love the idea of having patients involved to define maybe new endpoints. That would be incredible. 
uh, your passion is so contagious. <laughs> I love it. Um, and I think that, that that's the, the perfect uh, time to, to, to finish the interview um, because that, that's such a great message. Thank you. Um, I always love asking one last question before we, we finish. Uh, what's your happy place? A place that... Uh, where you feel at peace? My happy place is on a beach, um, being laying in the in the in a hammock uh, it, under a palm tree, mm-hmm. and it, with a breeze blowing and the wave, like you can hearing the hearing the rush of the waves going on the shore. That was my ideal happy place. Sounds incredible and very meditative. I, I was there when you said that. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ella. Uh, it's been really incredible talking to you and I wish you all the best for your mission. Um, yeah, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been fantastic. <laughs>